Hello, my name's John James, and I thought what better way to start a series of podcasts on the connection between music and nature than with a dawn chorus. So here I am, pretty close to dawn. The light is grey, there's a just a little faint billow of rain, and I'm utterly alone in my local park here in Bristol. And whenever I walk through this park, I'm struck by how the birds are always clustered in the same places. I'm sure it's very territorial. So I'm just going to take you round those places in the hope that we'll capture some of my favourite birds and start listening to them with a musical ear and consider how composers have done exactly the same for ages now. Let's have a go. Now, I'm no ornithologist, but I do enjoy listening to the various different call and response patterns of birds when I hear just say that cackle of magpies that you can hear. There we go. How is the other magpie in the other tree going to respond? Will they do it? And that's one of the first things I think is that we can treat these sounds either as individual instruments, individual calls and identify the bird or we can start opening the ears, I think, and hearing it as, as a symphony, as what Bernie Krauser would call uh, a biophony, the whole symphony of nature coming together, particularly obviously through bird call, but in the background, as I say, you've got that slight pitter-patter of rain providing an underscore as well, and admittedly, the rumble of buses, which is slightly annoying. Anyway, let's come up here. I call this bit Blackbird Slope because often I hear the fluting calls of blackbirds. Hmm, no blackbirds there, which is typical, isn't it? And I'm now on the upper ridge of the park where there's an avenue lined with London planes. But all we have is the sound of tyres on wet tarmac and the distant padding of a jogger. He's up early, gosh. Wood pigeons. That cooing always takes me back to my grandmother's house where I was woken up by a chorus, that's quite a polite way of putting it, of wood pigeons who cooed raucously, is all I can say, outside the bedroom window. I was aged six or seven, and that sound takes me to Cambridge, immediately into that rather old house. There we go, a conversation of wrens at last. Bugle clear through the dawn drizzle. So cheerful, isn't it? Fantastic. Well, the rain has thickened, so I'm now huddled under a lime tree and I'm at least enjoying the noise of the raindrops pattering against its broad, rather waxy leaves. But rain and water will be the subject of a future podcast and I can tell you I'm really excited to be having some artistic conversations with people who try to capture rain and storms 
in various different ways. And the idea is we'll see how we can inspire each other across artistic boundaries. I just heard a robin here and I feel almost like whispering because I swear they're seeing me with this, ah, there we go. They're seeing me with this microphone and doing a general tacit, you know, a long pause. I love robins for the same reason I love blackbirds, because to my ear, they sing with such variety, even though I'm sure they're repeating quite a lot of elements. But then that's what we do as improvising musicians as well. We have certain building blocks and we riff off those. We get into a groove, we stick with it, and just add a few little flourishes now and then. And I can see the, the robin doing that on a on a jazz flute or piccolo. Yeah, seagulls, it's Bristol after all. I see I've beaten the dog walkers to it. I'm quite happy about that. Well, it's good to be back in the dry. I thought we could talk about how composers have been treating birdsong from across the ages, from Renaissance through to the present day. I am aware, though, that it's become a bit of a cliche to talk about birdsong in lockdown. Everybody's talking about how bright and cheerful the birds sound now that the skies have been stripped of mechanical and human-made noise. I thought they were out having a party. It sounded raucous at one stage, but it does seem to be quite a common theme. And I'm pleased to say that later on in this podcast, I'm going to be joined by an expert on the matter, Tony Whitehead. He's the communications manager, no less, for the RSPB. But before we get to that conversation, I want to talk to you about how composers and musicians can imitate birdsong, because there are several different ways. It's almost as if there's a sliding scale of imitation available. And right from the get-go, let's talk about the paradox of this imitation. And the paradox is that the closer you get to the actual birdsong, the more faithful you are to the pitch bends and the rhythm of the birdsong itself, the more alien it sounds. And conversely, the more symbolic you are in representing that sound, the more it lands as actual bird-like sound on the listener's ears. It's an interesting paradox. Let's start with reasonably loose imitations of bird sounds. And I suppose the absolute classic in that respect is the cuckoo, isn't it? Right from that medieval song, Summer is a coming in. You can hear sing, coo, coo, that minor third. Doo, doo, doo. Um, they don't always sing it the right way around, but the cuckoo sound is definitely there. And then after that, both Renaissance and Baroque composers loved to imitate nature, and birdsong was top of the list. Whilst we're on the subject of cuckoos, why not turn to Handel? His chirpy organ concerto, entitled The Cuckoo and the Nightingale, encapsulates that joyous conversation between the two birds.
that high organ stop is perfect, isn't it? Just peeping up there, capturing the quality of the cuckoo and the nightingale. And another instrument that is pretty much the go-to choice of so many composers when it comes to birdsong is the flute. So let's hear Vivaldi give it a go. He wrote so many concertos that are descriptive, not just of nature, but that try to get as close to their source of inspiration as possible. And in this case, Vivaldi was describing a goldfinch. So have a listen, and then afterwards I'm going to compare the sound of the flute to the actual bird itself. Let's see how close Vivaldi got to the original. pretty close isn't it? You can hear how Vivaldi's imitated the pitch bends and the rhythms there of the goldfinch's song. It's a lot more accurate than I thought it would be so top marks to Vivaldi. So far we've been talking just about single individual birds haven't we? But another option is to look at how the birds sound together and trying to capture that excited dialogue between all the various different sounds in the air. Rameau did that particularly well on the harpsichord with his Le Rappel des Oiseaux. And there's something about, I don't know, the rather harsh qualities of the harpsichord. And I mean that kindly, you know, the brightness, I suppose, of it, of those plucked strings. Particularly with all those fiddly ornamentations. That's just perfect for the twitterings of birds. The lightness of it all. And notice how free the music sounds as well, it's just perfect. just talking about freedom earlier and the freedom of sound. I suppose one of the freest sounds available to us is that of the human voice. So again, let's turn to Jeannequin, a late Renaissance composer, as he tried to imitate the chorus of birds. It's, it's a wonderfully imaginative sound, this, with the singers required to scoop and slide and chur and whir. Have a listen. A third option, if you're trying to capture the world of birds, is to go to the poetic end of things. Not to go for a literal representation of the sound, but rather just evoke the spirit of the bird. And I can think of two really good examples here. There's the Lark Ascending, of course, by Vaughan Williams, which is more about the flight of the bird as it ascends, 
And I'm going to bring in Tony Whitehead from the RSPB at this stage. It's just a snippet from a much longer conversation that you can hear, by the way, separately on this webpage. I was asking Tony how Vaughan Williams treats the poetic image of the bird. It's so. I mean, I I I love it. I've always loved it. It's it's um uh, it do, it does many interesting things. Um, you know, but and it's based on Meredith made based on Meredith's poem. So so Vaughan Williams reads the poem. So you know, I, I I very much doubt he's out there in the field listening to a skylark. But he reads the poem and he's translated the poem. But the poem, it's Meredith's poem, actually does get um, a suggestion of the skylark. I'm sure Meredith is very familiar with the bird's eyes. He wouldn't be able to write those words. Um, but mm. so what. You you get with with is, is a translation of a poem uh, in in lark ascending but in doing that um vaughan williams does get uh, the form of a, a, a skylark towering um into the air and singing and calling uh, i mean this is when you when you experience skylark it is very very much that and you really get it in that really high pitched violin to start off in the beginning you can almost imagine you know a chalk down or a moor or some vast open land Landscape with the skylark just having taken off and going up into the air. Um, so it's a fantastic piece of music if you put on one side Vaughan Williams' knowledge of birds. <laughs> it captures more the, the physicality of the bird, doesn't it, it, in terms of its flight and the giddy heights and the circling. That, that, that's right. And, you know, it's the same to an extent with Delius on here in the first cocoon spring. It's a, you know, it's, it, it, it gives a certain feeling to it. it. It's about a place. It's about a feeling um, rather than necessarily about wanting to particularly ape or you know, imitate a bird. I talked of two examples, didn't I, of poetic renditions of birds. And the second that came to mind was an early work by Olivier Messiaen, who we associate so closely, don't we, with the whole world of birds. He had such a special connection to their sound and what they symbolised. For him, they were little messengers of the divine. I love that phrase. And certainly when you listen to this early work, a piano prelude called The Dove, La Colombe, by Messiaen, you can hear something of both the ecstatic, of the beyond, and his own personal yearning for that world. this early piece for piano, Messiaen went on to develop a far more sophisticated language for both the piano and for orchestra and for all sorts of instruments, and he called this his bird style, le style oiseau. For Messiaen, it wasn't just a matter of capturing, if you like, the brute elements of the sound, the pitch and the rhythm, although that's really hard to do, but also the colour and the timbre of what he was hearing. Now, beneath you've been listening to La Meule Noire, the Blackbird, which is for piano and flute, as you can hear. And I asked Tony what he thought about this piece and how close it was to not just the sound of the Blackbird, but also its character. Uh, 
I think it's really interesting with with Messian because Messian had obviously a really good ear and he had a good ear for birds. Um, and you know when he was, he actually went out into the woods, into the forests, um, and he was there. As some great photographs of him with his beret on, and he's and he's notating the sound, and he's doing it. He's doing it really accurately. Um, and he's not only just getting the the sequence of notes when they when they're making you know pitched sounds. He's also crucially, I think getting the rhythms um, of the birds in there as well um, and it's some of the most accurate uh, what he's doing is, a is accurate um, uh, but then when it comes to the later works the piano works um, what he seems to be doing is transposing it and playing with the sound a little bit uh, to, to my to my ears but this one uh, the Mille Noir uh, it, it, it is the one that seems to me to be closest to the actual sound when I hear that you could probably have a pretty good guess at, at, at what that is um, and the purity of those notes and he's even trying with some of those trills within them those very fast trills to try and suggest some of the um, less pitched sounds that the that the blackbird is doing um, and so that you know to me that one is probably the one of Messiaen's pieces that is closest to the actual sound of the, of the bird um, uh, out there as you would hear it uh, uh, you know in a town or a city. Sorry for that slight hiss, by the way, on the recording of Tony's voice down the line of the Zoom connection that we had. But don't let that put you off, because it really is a fantastic conversation that we had about half an hour in the end. So please do check that out. Now, there's a fourth option for imitating birdsong, which is to record it and to make samples of it. And I suppose the first composer who did that was Respighi, with his Pines of Rome. I think it's the third movement where he features a nightingale very atmospherically. And that whole craft has been kept very much alive by contemporary composers as well. You're listening to a piece by Jonathan Harvey, and I love how he's flipped the roles here in the title. It's called Bird Concerto, with piano song. This ingenious work, which was composed in 2001, features the samples of 40 Californian songbirds, slowed down so that we can actually hear the musicality of what they're singing. And the pianist is triggering the samples at the same time as they're playing. It's a wonderful work. So there you go, just some of the ways in which music has collided joyously with the world of birdsong over the years. I'll be back next week to look at music and storms, and I'm pleased to say that I'll be joined by sound artist Jay Richardson to do just that. Until then, happy listening. <laughs>